What I'm really trying to study is this global circuitry of knowledge, a global network, and I'm engaging with cities not as specific field sites, but as entry points into this dynamic, fast-moving landscape. So you've just finished up in London, and you're now in, where are we, Washington, D.C., at the AAGs. Where are you going next? Well, Washington is actually my next field site. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, this is City Road, and today Sophie Weber is heading outside the studio to report on a live PhD project from the field. Sophie is talking with Rachel Bock from the University of British Columbia about her global ethnography of urban solutions. So Sophie, what is a global ethnography? Yeah, so if you think about a traditional ethnography, you imagine like some kind of colonial anthropologist going out and hanging out in the highlands of Indonesia, learning the language, living in a village, trying to understand local customs. That's really an ethnography of place. So the idea of global ethnography kind of came out in the 90s and 2000s, uh, particularly in sociology, when you're trying to understand global flows. So this is a period where we're grappling with the idea of globalization. And so if we're going to take an ethnographic approach to understanding something like globalization, then hanging out exclusively in a particular village is not going to give you insights into that. I'm going to be doing uh, not an internship because I'm not spending enough time here, but I'm doing a, a few interviews with people from... Uh, development banks like the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Brookings Institution and a few other urban institutes. And I may make a trip up to New York while I'm here for over the next few weeks to meet some people from the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative. What is a global solution? What kinds of things is Rachel studying? Mostly, or the most predominant, I guess the most popular global solutions at the moment are in the areas of smart and resilient cities. Uh, And so these, one of the really famous examples of this is the 100 Resilient Cities program, which the Rockefeller Foundation has funded. And this is a project of um, selecting 100 vulnerable cities, cities that are vulnerable to the shocks and stresses of globalization, urbanization, and climate change, and trying to propose solutions that can travel across this network. Because, I mean, it's an interesting time considering what we've just heard about the 100RC initiative, which, as Michael Bokowitz has told us, is not actually disbanded, but it's just being streamlined. So you kind of wonder what, what, um, how the members of this 100RC community, are, how are they expected to deal with these shocks and stresses in relation to their employment opportunities? That's something you really want to bring up. So when Rachel and I were having this conversation, the 100 Resilient Cities program had just been cancelled just in the last few days. And since then, it's been rehabilitated in in some forms, but largely doesn't exist anymore. I'm going to Toronto as well to attend a digital innovation conference. So in that, I'm trying to do something which uh, I think of as conference ethnography. So not just site and participant observations, but trying to talk at, at length with uh, participants in that workshop and if they have field trips you, I'll go along with them and just try to understand what they're uh, what they're thinking about cities. As a general rule urban scholars urban studies scholars have not thought and written and talked a lot about the methods that we use in trying to understand processes in cities 
And so this conversation is really insightful because it's really unpacking how you get into these decision-making worlds, how you enter them, the kinds of challenges that you might have in doing so, uh, ethical challenges about your responsibility to your participants. So I'm doing a kind of follow the network analysis as, as it were. And after that, I'm doing an internship in Singapore at the Center of Livable Cities. And, and after that, I'll be, I think I'll be spending the rest of the year in Asia and maybe parts of Latin America. But the thing is, I don't really know where yet. But I guess that's the fun part about this because I don't know where I'm going to go. It's usually that, I've, that this looks interesting and I'm going to see if I can get in. So there's two parts about the methodology that I think are interesting. Firstly, you're trying to study something that's constantly in motion, constantly shifting, and that is being assembled in a variety of different spaces. So how do you study something that's both emergent and on the move? For one thing, I'm not really sure that it's emergent because it's been because the idea of solutions, best practices, models have have taken have they've been in the landscape for at least a decade now. So it's so it's tracking something that is in part historical, but also as you say, very extensive and geographically wide ranging. So the methodology, or rather the methodological approaches that I'm using are aligned with uh, Michael Burrow's idea of global ethnography and I'm and I'm using it to deal with the problem of how solutions have become a global phenomenon. And it's, and global is not a term that I use lightly because I've seen it not just in, in select parts of the global north, but it's also used across across the global south, across emerging economies with almost disturbing regularity. But the ways in which those terms are deployed are obviously different. So one so one so the thing I'm trying to study is a moving object. The object of an analysis itself is not clear because as you said, best practices are vacuous. They are opaque they are they they can't be pinned down so what i'm really trying to study is this global circuitry of knowledge a global network and i'm engaging with cities not as specific field sites but as entry points into this dynamic fast-moving landscape so when i say i'm doing an internship in london it doesn't mean i'm studying uh, london or uk urban policy although those things matter for the context in which i'm I'm looking at best practice, but often I'm using that as an entry point to understand the way in which practitioners engage with the global network and interestingly how they think of the global network itself. So, I, so I've so i been using this uh, rather interviewing technique which is inspired by the repertory grid technique in psychology. So the particularly unique thing about Rachel's study is she's getting access to this typically closed world. So it's not easy to study the Rockefeller Foundation. I can vouch for that. They're not particularly open. And so the, I guess the unique thing about her project is that she's both working or, or conducting research in this technocratic and typically neoliberal field. She's really um, diving into the belly of the beast, but doing it in such a way that she's both focusing on these globalizing forces, these technocratic neoliberal institutions, but also uh, basing her research in particular cities. So I hand them nine cards and then I ask them to name nine key organizations that they think are critical in the global landscape, critical or unavoidable 
sometimes a term that I use. Like, what, what do you think of when you think of this global landscape of urban solutions? What comes to mind? So they usually come, well, for the people that I've been talking to so far, the usual suspects are Rockefeller, Bloomberg, uh, what else? Tech companies like Siemens, Cisco, IBM. And, and then after they come up with nine examples, I ask them to kind of categorize the examples. How do you make sense of it? You can shift the cards around, this sort of thing. And then, interest, and then the interesting thing is, how do you think of your organization, your place in this, and your place in the organization in relation to all these other actors? And then you can kind of get a sense of the very stratified worlds in, in this global landscape. So it reminds me of um, Ananya Roy's use of the term small worlds in, in, a, in a 2010 book on microfinance. So I think one thing anything realizes about studying globalization is that the global landscape is obviously not homogenous. There are a lot of divisions in it, various kinds of uh, configurations, grouping. Some things are nestled more closely together and others more like, further apart. So you can so by asking them these questions, you can get an idea of where they see themselves in the landscape and what to them is a global is a global landscape. And then I also do the same thing with solutions, which I think. I think they like this a bit a little more because it's a bit more gimmicky. They actually asked me to do it at parties. So it's quite literally become a party trick. But I find it really interesting f for asking them to do that because I get a sense of what they actually think are solutions. So I went in, into this research uh, thinking that there are no solutions to cities. There are no solutions. At least not, not the kind that we've seen so far. I, I think a, really, a real solution would be something that's bottom-up, progressive, Nothing that we've seen of like by companies or philanthropic organizations at least, because these are or consultancies, because these are the actors that are most active in the global landscape. It's obvious from Rachel the way Rachel's talking that uh, the global solutions that she's studying, she finds particularly problematic. And to be clear, they are largely neoliberal and technocratic solutions to structural problems in cities. Yeah. So I so this is uh, something I'm going to be using across. The, over the next year, I'll be asking people from different organizations in different cities across the world what they think uh, the global landscape is, what they think are problems and solutions. So I think by the end of the year, I will have built up a truly global database of what practitioners in this, in this city space think problems and solutions are. Does the content of the policy matter for best practice? Or does it matter that it's only labeled best practice? Whether you're trying to solve uh, repeat offending, uh, for instance, through one particular type of measure or a different type of measure, does the content of what is being proposed matter? Or is it just the idea that it's been labelled a best practice and therefore moves around the world because of that label? To a certain extent, actually to a great ex extent, I don't think it matters at all because I, I see best practice as, as, some, as a legitimising technique you use it to meet a certain company, organization, or in a benchmark. You have to say best practice, otherwise people, out, people outside, people in your organization, people outside your organization are not, are not going to uh, listen. But they've also become rather inoculated, immunized to the language of best practice, which is why to them it's something that is Every day there's commonplace, but it doesn't really have much currency anymore. So that's why it's, it's, uh, it's an empty signifier. That's what it is. It doesn't mean anything, but it does something, which is the interesting thing. Okay, so in the 100 Resilient Cities program, they're trying to think about introducing big companies uh, to solve the, the, the crisis of, of 
of climate change in cities, essentially. So they're trying to connect global uh, service providers, global utility uh, companies like Veolia and other ones. They're uh, major water and waste uh, companies that work all over the world and trying to create a new emphasis on privatizing water and waste solutions in cities. So reintroducing these global actors, these global private actors as the solution to a whole series of water and waste crises. What that looks like in particular cities varies, but for uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, these private sector actors are the most important ones for solving crises like climate change in cities. I think it, we have to understand what all this is doing for cities and to cities and what that reflects about the restructuring processes of, of local, regional and federal states. What, is, what this reflects about state capacities that best practices come to be so normalised and and seen to be necessary, but not really, not genuinely thought of as such. So you're saying that only, for instance, the city of London can institute a best practice and therefore the kind of regional cities are left behind? I wouldn't say regional because uh, someone who is familiar with UK, with uh, best practice in UK cities, a practitioner, he he told me that Leeds is known for, for something to do with uh, smart cities, Bristol, uh, that whole tagline of Bristol is open, so they are into data access. But it's uh, it's it's not it's something that I think is common to big cities, so not small, medium-sized cities, which is the market that they're looking to capture. You're listening to City Road on Two SCR one hundred seven point three FM in Sydney. Sophie Weber is talking with Rachel Bock about the global urban solutions industry. Who are they? What do they do? And why a critical reading of this industry is important. In the next part of the conversation, Rachel and Sophie talk about the methodology in a little more detail. So the second thing about your methodology is that you were ethnographically embedded in um, this government agency. Um, And so even now when we're talking, you've raised things that you're like, actually, I don't think that that can go on the record. So how do you, and and I'm imagining that the people working inside this agency are very much like yourself. Are they they like me? In in a sense, I think the value of ethnography in in situations like this, I'm not not trying to say that it's, that it's, that it's much better than than interviewing or it's a a direct substitute for that. I mean, whatever you use depends on the kind of questions you're asking and what you want to to achieve. But I think for um, doing the kind of thing that I'm doing, which is to understand on an everyday level why these discourses, discourses, the rhetoric have become so commonplace, it's important to use an ethnographic lens. So... The people in these organizations, they are they like me? They are they are I, I are they like me? They they are everyday ordinary people, obviously. It's something that you that you kind of know going in, but it's not until you've really spent enough time with them. Yeah, or go or we had a wine tasting just several weeks ago. So it's it's these interactions that I enjoy and they help me to understand a little better why they think the way that they do. And it's, and then on, on an everyday level, you can see in certain kinds of interactions, like for example, there's a weekly show and tell 
at uh, the workplace. So people get to do presentations on the kind of um, issues about cities that intrigue them. So someone <laughs> did uh, a thing on Marie Kondo in cities. I know. <laughs> so <laughs> he he. So I asked. So I found I found that to be interesting because because intuitively, what does Marie Kondo have to do with cities? Not much, but he said there was a problem of wastage and and uh, throw just general disposal of stuff that was happening in the cities. And then and then you go to his presentation, you listen to him uh, go on at, at length about Marie Kondo and and things that don't spark joy in cities. It's uh you you get to, you get to understand what makes them tick. So yeah, some of them are my friends even. So it's uh I think. The dilemma of writing all this up and having to deal with the complexity of the issues that I'm addressing and also figuring out how to do it in a way that, or write it in a way that does justice to them because you don't just want to dismiss them. There's a reason for why they think the way that they do, which is not to excuse what they are doing. I think it sounds great. Thanks for joining us on City Road. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to 2SER on 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is City Road. See you next time. <laughs>